Welcome to the Brian Rouge Show. It's May the 3rd, 2021. My guest, it's a huge honor to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back. He's going to talk about his new book on the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Part 2. So welcome, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been months, I guess, since I had you on. I'm glad I contacted you again. Yes. Yes. So how, how long has your book been out? Or when's it coming out? Uh, we, the, it was shipped on Friday. Uh-huh. It shows up in the warehouse tomorrow. This is the second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. It's uh, three three volumes uh, in a box, box set of three volumes. It includes 600 pages of new material. Uh, so it is, uh, the reason we did it in three volumes is because it's 1,800 pages long now, as opposed to 1,200, which is what this first edition was. The first edition appeared uh, 12 years ago. And uh, over that period of time, I've also written a number of articles on this topic, including, including uh, Jewish Privilege, which was a bestseller on Amazon Kindle until the ADL uh, persuaded them to take it down. Yeah. So that, well, that will be included as part of this, this material. That also is now being translated into a number of different languages and is making the rounds through a number of European countries, uh, all, all of which... Uh, have uh, criminalized any criticism of uh, Jewish people. Wow! So it's it's a, a, there's a, a big demand. Uh, we, I I looked on the internet and uh, copies of the first edition are they're asking fifteen thousand dollars for a copy of the first Whoa. edition. Whoa! So where, where can people buy your book? And they get it from your website, Culture Yes, yes. You have to you have to go to fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com and that's the only place you can get this book amazon banned us uh, uh about a year ago so uh that's it that's it that's where that's where you can find it and uh it's it'll be available uh we're uh, we're expecting it into our warehouse uh tomorrow which would be tuesday may 4th so uh and then it will be available we're ready to ship out uh the advanced orders we've had so far uh and then get to the new orders Wow. Well, I highly recommend your books. You've had about 40 books, I think, since 1980, right? Something like that, depending on whether e-books count as books. Yeah. But, uh, half of that is if you don't count e-books as books. Right. Yeah, so we can talk about that. Also, you were emailing me about COVID and some of the New World Order people, you know, within the structure of COVID. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, well, that was the, uh, the mention of Shaka Tali. Yeah. Uh, the head of Atali associates the consummate insider in France, uh, an advisor to Macron, uh, who is hanging on by a thread. Uh, uh, Monsieur Macron used COVID to break up the uh, yellow vest protest. So he was already in trouble. He was already uh, seen by the people of France as nothing but a representative of Jewish interest. And Atali speaks for Jewish interests. Uh, that's what he does. A very influential guy, and when he speaks, he, he he speaks with authority, and the authority is an authority on the oligarchs who control uh, that culture and the world at large. And so, what he said basically he gave a prognostication about the COVID, and he said, basically, you can expect ten more years of lockdowns and vaccines. That's from the uh, oligarchic uh, wow. command control. So that so if you thought you were just going to have uh, if you got one shot oh. now now you've now oh, it's going to be two well, and as variants, soon as you get Michael, two there's the pandemic there's variants there's a pandemic going on got to <laughs> right. keep safe got to keep safe right and this is being manufactured throughout the media right now so uh, count uh, if the oligarchs have their way it's going to be ten more years and God knows how many vaccines and lockdowns in between uh, for in between uh, during that period of time. Now, the, be the best example of what's going on right now is India. I don't know whether you've uh, uh, Google the news aggregator. Uh, that's four straight days last week. India was the top story. India, mass, uh, mass dyings. They, they can't find enough burning gats. They're, they're having to use parking lots to burn the corpses. People are no oxygen. And, of course, the punchline here. The feel-good way to end this is the uh, uh, United States and Great Britain are going to send vaccines. 
Thank oh, God. Goodness. They're going to send vaccines to India. Now, India so this has is a false flag. This is fake news. I think it's flag. completely, completely manufactured. Yeah. And why do I say that? I've, I've spoken with my correspondents in India uh, recently. I was there myself uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, this is the worst time of year in India right now. And we're talking about May leading up to June because this is the end of the dry season and we're leading, heading into the monsoon rains. Now, during this period of time, it gets very, very hot in India. And I'm talking about 120 degrees, 130 degrees. And if you live in a city like Delhi, for example, you have enormous amounts of air pollution. You've got stagnant air. That's the problem with Delhi. It's like Los Angeles. It's a bowl and the air is simply stays there and gets stagnant and it's full of pollutants. Delhi has the highest pollution rate in the world if you're talking about big particles of pollution. So it's a terrible place to be. And the result is that people die in droves this time of year in India. It's a function of the temperature. It gets very hot. And so what they're doing is the classic bait and switch. They're taking all of these people who would die normally and saying it's all COVID. Yeah, trying very to creative, try, very creative. Trying to create panic among the population and, and they're succeeding to a large extent. There are people who are saying they can't breathe. Well, I think they're right. They probably are right. They can't breathe because when it's so hot and so polluted like that in a place like Delhi, you do have trouble breathing. They tell people this was before, okay, before anybody even knew there was a COVID the, the TV announcer would go on in places like Delhi and say, do not exercise during the day. You are taking your life in your hands if you exercise. When I was in Delhi, I remember uh, seeing all these cyclists going down the road. Well, it was five in the morning. It wasn't even light yet. That's when you exercise in Delhi because once the temperature goes up, it's forget it. All of this is being reworked, re-engineered to uh, panic the people into feeling that they have to get the vaccine. Now, India uh, is a special case because Gates has been involved in India, Bill Gates and his foundation, and they vaccinated people there and the people died and they got sterilized. Yeah. And, and uh, as a result, he was banned from India. Well, now they're using yeah. this, this uh, crisis, this manufactured crisis, to overcome that ban and overcome oh. all the bad reputation and bring oh. the vaccines back. Makes no sense at all. <laughs> no. So this is the, this is a type of uh, uh, manipulation that is going on right now uh, uh, in India. We got to, I, I, we're going to have a report in the next issue of Culture Wars magazine, more in depth, uh, but that's basically the gist of what I just told you. Holy smoke. So do you think international Jewish power is behind the whole COVID agenda from the top down? Well, I mean, it, you can't talk about the oligarchs without talking about the Jews because yep. they're a significant part of, I mean, not, not every oligarch is a Jew, but uh, that's never been the case. There's never been a, a Jewish revolutionary movement that was 100% Jews, never. Uh, uh, Bolshevism, like the classic example, well, Stalin wasn't a Jew. Uh, he was part of it, and he ended up hating uh, Trotsky, who was a Jew. And uh, but even if neoconservatism neo is the same thing, that was the kind of the successor in America to uh, the Bolshevism. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't all Jews, but it's a Jewish movement. You don't have to have a hundred percent Jews in order to have a Jewish movement. There's Jewish so, control, like Jewish conceived, Jewish Jew philosophy, Jew Jewish. Yeah, it's, it's it's what I mean by not. It's control. You're right, but we're also it's an idea. It's a Jewish concept. That that's the important thing. It's this idea of heaven on earth, that we are going to overthrow the moral order, the social order, the political order, and the cosmic order. The, the, because we hate Logos. And we hate Logos because we, we killed Jesus Christ, who was the Logos incarnate. And we've been at war with that, uh, with that Logos ever since the crucifixion. This is the people that chose Barabbas. Uh, the revolutionary over Christ, the Logos, uh, and they, they know what they did, and they have a consciousness that gets passed from generation to generation. You know, it's not inevitable. They all have free will. They can all choose not to do this, and I know many Jews who have chosen not to do this and have returned to Logos in one way or the other, fully by becoming members of the Catholic Church, by being baptized, partially, sometimes simply by telling the truth about Jewish power. 
So there's a, a whole spectrum. J just to give you a, a recent example, uh, Tucker Carlson did a show on uh, replacement and immigration, and that earned yeah, the uh, yeah. <laughs> the ADL called him an anti-Semite because he used the word replacement. Now, it what does it, that have to do with Jews? What does that have to do with anti-Semite? That's right. It's like <laughs> the, the, the guilty flea when none pursue it here. But uh, but uh, uh, 1,500 rabbis uh, wrote back and protested against the ADL, saying that basically they were making Jews look ridiculous by this. This is, hasn't ended. Now Sean Hannity's head's on the chopping block. That just happened today. He said something like, "Oh, you know, you know." Oh yeah, yeah. He he used the term Bolshevik Bernie. Bolshevik Bernie. I think he's referring wow. to uh, the Bernie uh, Sanders. Right? Yeah, Bernie Sanders. The, ah, uh, great. Thank well, you. the the ADL has now called Sean Hannity an anti-Semite. Well, what does that have to do with Jews if it's Bolshevism? Well, I guess they're admitting that Bolshevism was a Jewish movement, aren't they? <laughs> that was stupid of them to do that then, wasn't it? <laughs> but but the, the point here is this is a moral panic. And it, it's a lot like, it's getting to be a lot like the Salem witch trial. Except that they didn't call you an anti-Semite back then. They called you a witch. Everybody was a witch. Nobody was safe. You could walk out and and uh, your your wife, the minister's wife, was accused of being a witch. It got out of control. That's what a moral panic is, and that's what's happening right now. The Jew, the the ADL is going completely hysterical over this issue, and they're accusing everyone, everyone. Are I, they shooting themselves in the foot? Like are they imploding well, themselves? I, I think I think this is the way God works in human history. You overplay your hand. Uh, the Jews always overplay their hand because. They don't, they don't respect Logos. And Logos means limit, among other things, but it means limit, clear limitation, a distinction between it. Well, they don't believe in limits. And as a result, they always step over the line that they didn't see, and then there's a reaction. That's what happens. That's what's happened throughout human history. And I think so I guess the I, rabbis tell God to sit in the corner, we'll sort this out, and we'll tell you what to do, God. That's their attitude. That was uh, literally what the Sanhedrin said to Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. And he is God. So, yeah, it's yeah. not an exaggeration to say that. Holy so, shit. so I mean, I was going to say, I've seen Sean Hannity uh, in action. I, I saw him interview Benjamin Netanyahu, and I have never seen such a disgusting display of groveling in my life. And yet this guy is now being accused of being an anti-Semite. So that's, it, it's a moral panic. That's, that's exactly what it is. So true. Same with Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is very pro-Israel, right? Like he's controlled opposition on the right to go so far, but he's loyal to Israel. Well, he's, he's got a, a, a leash around his neck and he can go so far. Uh, and it was, Basically, when something like that happens, it had to be a Jew at Fox News who defended him, you know, who basically. So, so let, let's, this is the situation. When they make that accusation against you, you're dead. You have no way to come back. You, you can't say anything. And all you can hope for is that some Jew will step out and say, no, he isn't. Uh, but your, your fate is completely out of your hands at that point. This is an intolerable situation. We can't go on like this. We can't go on like this. Yeah. And now it's been transferred to COVID. Now the COVID is the latest revolutionary movement. It's an attempt to overthrow representative government throughout the world. And, uh, yeah, well, I just mentioned Atali. Uh, the Jews are behind it. I mean, I, I, there are other people involved. I've never said that every single member of these revolutionary movements was a Jew. No, but it, but it has that. Jewish backing. It has Jewish, Jewish backing. backing. And also, yeah. uh, the head of Pfizer is a Jew, so he's making. Oh, I didn't know that. It's a Jewish make, establishment. Is a good term. Well, he, he's making money. He's making yeah. money. They are going to make money, and when they make big money, they contribute it to Jewish organizations, money laundering operations like the ADL, whose main job throughout historically was uh, uh, getting criminals like Meyer Lansky or Mo Dalitz or or Jeffrey Epstein off the hook. Yeah. The man that gave Jeffrey Epstein his sweetheart deal in Florida the first time that came around was a Jewish lawyer who got an award from the ADL for doing that. <laughs> 
So they're like a parasite or a tapeworm in society. They get money and they feed it back into their their looping. I, I I I don't want to use I don't want to use terms you know pejorative terms like that. But I think we're talking about a system that has uh, uh, if you combine the financial uh, gain from something like usury, if you combine that with the complete control of the media. Uh, where basically uh, you combine that with the political system, you have a circular system here. Okay. Yeah, circles. So, circular, circular. Well, and the, the money goes around in circles, and it goes around in Jewish circles. So let's say you, if you want me to be elected, you've got to have money, and the, the the Jews have a lot of money which they're willing to put into political campaigns, even small ones like prosecutor. That is a whole new wrinkle on this thing. All of the Soros prosecutors. Uh, in cities like Philadelphia, St. Louis, Chicago, where crime is going through the roof here because these people are not prosecuting because that's part of the plan here. That's part of the plan. So you need you money. The criminals in the streets. Right. It's, it's, it's um, making use of the, uh, the it, it, it's a resurrection of the Black Jewish Alliance. It's that simple. That was created by the ADL. The yeah. ADL came into existence after the lynching of Leo Frank in 1915. Yeah. That was the beginning of the Jack Jew Black Jewish Alliance with groups like the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of the Colored People, which was a Jewish organization. Jewish lawyers, the Spingarn brothers, created a Jewish organization to mobilize black people, to turn them into revolutionaries. Uh, to overthrow the, the government, especially in the South. The, the South was targeted in that regard. Uh, uh, well, that, that collapsed in 1967. I go into detail about why that collapsed in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. <coughs> but George Soros brought it back again. It's back. It came back with Black Lives Matter. <coughs> Black group... Lives Matter. So Floyd <laughs> George is now a sanctified individual. Right. What, what, it was Ferguson that brought back the Black Jewish Alliance when Soros created Black Lives Matter to basically create those, burn down that city, you know, uh, uh, the suburb of St. Louis, or where we had another example of, you know, a black man being apprehended by a, a white cop. The black guy reaches for his gun. The cop grabs it first, shoots him, and that type of thing. These, hap these things happen all the time, uh, but now they're being weaponized uh, in, a, in a, 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 an unprecedented way. Yeah, gee. So where do you want to go next? Did you want to talk about your book at all? The, the contest? Yeah, settings? yeah. I'd, I'd like to talk about that. Yeah, book yeah. That's because, what we're, that's but what I mean, the, ma the, main, the main reason uh, uh, the main reason I'm talking about it is because I, I have no reason to regret what I did. I think it was uh, the book that had to be written at that time because no one, no one was talking about this. The only precedent you had at that time, I'm talking about 12, 13 years ago, would have been uh, the Walt Mearsheimer book on on the Jewish lobby, that came out around 20 years ago, wrecked their career. But finally, two people in uh, prestigious positions in our society were able to say talk about the power of the Israel lobby. Yeah, so, so you're, you really established a method. I, I discovered you about that time around 10 or 11 years ago on YouTube, and I just had this kind of adulation. Oh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, I didn't know I'd ever speak to you someday. Yeah, but you really are like. A, you know, a world-class intellectual. Well, thank you. Thank you. So thank I really you. It. And I, certainly Brian, all my friends said, well, oh, you got from Dr. E. Michael Jones on today, Brian. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah. but, I mean, so part of the, the main reason I wrote this was to basically uh, disconnect this paradigm from uh, the, the race explanation. This is, this is the way the Jews portrayed it. Uh, they portrayed anti-Semitism as a form of racism, and it was. Uh, it was the original meaning of the term was. It was created in the 1870s in Germany. Uh, Wilhelm Marr created it because. Oh, I didn't know that anti-Semitism. It's it's no older than uh, the 1870s. It's not That's very old. <laughs> 1871. Uh, Wilhelm Marr's book came out. Does. Uh, what was it? Their streit zwischen dem Judentum und dem Christentum, or, or Germanentum, just in Germanentum and Christentum. That's probably not the exact title, but that's the closest I can get right, right off the my top of my head here. But basically, uh, Marr was a a revolutionary 
in the revolution of 1848. He was in Hamburg at the time. And uh, the Jews uh, were instrumental in that uprising. And they, they betrayed the Germans. They simply betrayed them. They cut a separate, cut a separate piece in Hamburg, and he was furious at them. And he, that animosity remained with him for the next 30 years, uh, leading him to write this book. But he, being a revolutionary, he did, he did not like the Catholic Church at all. And he didn't want to deal with this uh, with, according to, to, to the traditional vocabulary uh, of the Catholic Church. And so this was a time, the time around Darwin, uh, when biology is very important. So he came up with a biological definition of what it meant to be a Jew. It was basically that they had bad DNA and they couldn't help themselves. That is not what I'm saying. That is what anti-Semitism is. Uh, classically, that's what the word means. I changed the whole term in the terms of uh, engagement when I said that it began with the uh, arrival of Christ on this earth, when the Jews had to decide whether they were going to accept him or reject him as their Messiah. Uh, and those who accepted him are now known as Christians, and those who rejected them are now known as Jews. And they rejected him. Uh, in rejecting him, they rejected Logos. And when you reject Logos, you become a revolutionary. That was the redefinition of the, of the issue that took place in that book. And nothing that has happened since that time has made me change my, my discussion. Uh, nothing has happened. And I think it's become more and more relevant as each year has gone by. And it's, and it's, we're still standing. We are, as St. Paul said, we're persecuted, but not abandoned. The SPLC yeah. went after me uh, right after, uh, around the time the book was coming out, said I was a, a hate group. Uh, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I don't hate and I'm not a group here. I'm a publisher. But you're the main guy, I think, in planet Earth, the Jewish revolutionaries. You're the main guy out of 7.8 billion people. How much are they actually beating you up and terrorizing you and, and, and giving you a hard time? How bad is it? Well, I, I mean, they, they worked uh, to get me kicked off of certain platforms. That was the big uh, battle of 2019 when the Jews, they, they created the term hate speech. Hate yeah, speech like your is, YouTube channel, right? What's the status of your YouTube channel? I don't have a YouTube channel yeah, anymore. Yeah, down, yeah. Uh, so, but, but, but hate speech is a complete, it's not just a Jewish creation, it's an ADL creation. The ADL created that term, and it's a term like anti-Semitism against which you can have, there is no argument. It is a label that get puts on, gets put on you, uh, which means this is the end of the discussion. You just lost because we put this label on you. That happened to me. I got fired from my jobs in 2015. I guess it's happened to you. Yeah. Well, it's a, it, this is it's becoming intolerable. Yeah, it's yeah. becoming intolerable. Ridiculous. We we have we have no defense. You, normally, you would something. Government is supposed to protect you, and we call this having rights. Okay, so you're supposed to have the right to free speech, or the right to assemble. Well, what we saw uh, just in, uh, in January, early January was an abrogation of both of those rights because they redefined what happened at the Capitol as an act of terrorism. They, all these people collaborated. It was a mass media phenomena. It was a label, a category of the mind got imposed on it, and it meant de facto that you had no rights in this regard. That's what it meant. That simple. That's yeah. simple. Yeah, it's ridiculous, but where is this going? I mean, it's probably not going to improve anytime soon with Agenda 2030. Like I remember you once said, the problem with social engineering is that it doesn't stop. It's stuck in my mind. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other side of the coin is that uh, it doesn't work if you understand that it's social engineering. So if we could have gone back to those neighborhoods, let's say, uh, in Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, and uh, well, Detroit, uh, let's say during the 1950s or the 60s, and you could have gone to the people of Market Park or any of those neighborhoods that we were talking about, Southie in Boston, uh, Corktown in, in Detroit, North Philadelphia in Philadelphia, and said to the people, look, I know it looks as if it's black people, that they're the people who are moving into the neighborhood, but there are other people involved in this and they're invisible. And we need to have to, we need to bring the, uh, our attention, the general attention to these people. We need to name them by names. Now yeah. it, it wouldn't have been, it, unfortunately, it's not possible when it's happening. 
So I wrote, that's why I wrote yeah. the, the Slaughter of Cities, uh, Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing. But I couldn't have written that while it was going on because the archives weren't available. Generally, material doesn't land in the archives until 20 years after the event. So you're saying people didn't know at the time. You didn't know at the time. Nobody knew what was going on. Yeah, so they're always two or three steps ahead of us. You know, in, in the Protocols of Zion, it states, who can fight an invisible enemy? Well, the point is to make the enemy visible. The point is, so, yeah. so today, just today, okay, hot off the press, Wall Street Journal, there's Elliot Abrams, and he's calling for uh, a new party. And he's got some name for it. And basically what it's America. We need a vigorous American foreign policy. Well, wait a minute, Elliot. We're not that stupid anymore. Okay. First of all, you're not an American. Okay. You don't, you never represented American interests. Uh, you're always, you claim, you would have to admit that you're a dual citizen, but that, that would be a step in the right direction. You represent Israel's interests. So, okay, I think it's a great idea if Elliot forms his own party, and we'll call it the Jewish party. Okay, we'll get it out in the open, and then that will allow us to form the anti-Jewish party. And then we'll, if that were the case, we'd have a real choice in elections, because that is the real issue here. You've got a situation where these Jewish groups like IPAC control both sides of the aisle. That uh, is starting to weaken now. There, it's not bipartisan. The, wow. the, the JCPOA was a break, I think. That was the uh, Iran nuclear agreement. That was a break in bipartisan uh, collaboration. And Trump was another break because he took it to such an extreme that people could hated him for it. So it's, it's breaking down, and that's, uh, it's up to us to become conscious of what's going on. And then it's Does that make you hopeful? People. Do you have hopeful that, it, that it's breaking down? Because it seems to me every year, every decade, the Jewish agenda is getting further and further. How hopeful do you feel or, or not? Well, uh, in uh, motus infine velocior, things go faster at the end. So we, we, I think we're approaching some end here. It may be the end of the American empire. It may be the end of the world. It may be the end of uh, the uh, uh, fact that uh, Jews can control things from behind the scenes. You but, think like the end times could be the Catholic end could times? Be, could be the end times. Could be. I'm open to that suggestion. I just published an article by someone, a guy in Argentina, who made his case for that proposal. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think it could uh, be the end of Jewish control of the world. Maybe someone else will control the world. Yeah. But but the point the point that that has to precede that is our consciousness that there is such a thing as Jewish control, and then once having that consciousness, our determination to do something about it. You can't have anything without those two steps. Yeah, that's why you and I are here. I've been awake to this since about I don't know 2012. Yeah, we're doing something what we can, yeah. Yeah, I think many people are. Many people all over the world are waking up. To, but first of all, the whole world is in the same situation because of COVID. Uh, that has led to a kind of global consciousness, but uh, not particularly the global consciousness that they want to people to have. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, uh, the trick here. Because so it's going to be backfiring, working in our favor, waking people up. Like, what's going on? People realize this is ridiculous, these lockdowns, or they're waking up, you're saying. Well, I think one of the things that's going to fall is this naive understanding of science as being always right. That's, that's the first casualty of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. Good, good. <laughs> because because uh, that, that was uh, the pillar of the Enlightenment. I mean, certainly one of the main pillars of the Enlightenment. Well, thank and, you. And, yeah. and if you uh, if you read jo uh, John, uh, not no, uh, Gunnar Myrdal's book, The American Dilemma, which is basically the the Bible of social engineering in America. Uh, it was supposed to be about the race issue, but it's really about how the race issue can be weaponized to bring about social engineering. He said in the preface to that book, "There's never been more faith in science than today." And by ah, today, ah. by today, he meant 1942. So ah. uh, that that's true. Uh, at that point, there was absolutely crazy stuff was happening. All you had to do was say it was science and everybody would just roll over and play dead. 
Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, <laughs> the homosexual charlatan, uh, charlatan who gave us the Kinsey reports. He yeah. was uh, always using science to basically right. break down your resistance and undermine the moral law. I think those days are gone because now we're confronted. Well, we got two scientists now, one saying uh, the lockdown is legitimate. The other saying it's not. Well, yeah. what do you do when you're confronted with two contradictory messages? I guess you get a thousand scientists and see who's got the most pile. Like science is not a consensus. Science is, is truth. It's discovery. And usually truth, truth is in a minority, right? Yes. And so you basically have anointed scientists. Like, wait a minute, Bill Gates. No, wait a minute. Bill Gates doesn't have any authority whatsoever as a scientist. He was a computer he's a programmer. Yeah. <laughs> he's got no, he's not a virologist. So when you get all these virologists who are uh, saying that he's uh, causing uh, uh, an unnecessary panic, why are we listening to Bill Gates? Well, Dr. Jones, it's because he wears a, 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 a pink sweater. Therefore, right. you can trust him because he wears a pink sweater. Yeah, he's warm and fuzzy. Yeah. I remember, I remember when Dan Rather was on his way out. He started wearing sweaters. sweaters. Again. <laughs> that was to give a, give you the impression he was a warm human being. Uh, and apparently Bill Gates learned that lesson. Yeah. So anything, should we go back to your book, like the contents or the chapters of Jewish Revolution Spirit Part 2? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the like the, uh, the new chapters, uh, the chapter on the Aryan crisis. These, these are chapters like, uh, that I just didn't, you know, I'm suddenly doing research for a completely different article or a completely different idea. And then I'm bumping into the same story. You can't understand the Aryan crisis unless you can understand the Jewish manipulation of it. I'm at, really interested. What do you mean by, you mean the Aryan race? Tell us about the Aryan crisis. No, no, no. I mean the, the, the heresy, the Aryan heresy of the fourth oh. century. Arius was a, uh, a, 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 a priest uh, in the Greek part of the Roman Empire started off in Alexandria, went back and forth between uh, the, that place in Asia Minor that I've forgotten the name, Antioch. Antioch, it was basically a battle between Antioch and Alexandria. And he came up uh, with the idea that, uh, you know, it's a, the, the church has been meditating on this idea for three centuries at this point. Uh, is meditating on two words, and the words are Father, which appears in the Gospel, and the other word is Logos, which appears in the Gospel. You know, so I've already written a book about Logos, Logos rising, about the whole history of the word Logos. So, uh, how do you come up with some type of understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son? That's basically what we're talking about. We're trying to understand the relationship. Uh, of these two people because it's throughout the gospel and it's at certain points it seems like they're obviously two different people you know uh but then jesus will say uh i and the father are one well what does that mean well we're talking about something that is really hard to understand because you're talking about the inner nature of god which is above our understanding but we can come to some type of formulation and basically it was that uh Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Yeah, isn't it like ch challenge to God, God going through a man, something like that? <laughs> beget is the word. Ah. God the Father begat God the Son. That's why he's his son. He created man. So beget he, means created. Be, no, to beget means to procreate. It's yeah. not created. You know, you, know, you know create your children. You procreate, you procreate your children. Them, yeah. You know, you collaborate. You have a role to play in that, but you don't create your children the way you created that bookshelf in the corner of your living room. You know what I mean? How do you know uh, so much about my living room? That's incredible. I, I just figured you had a bookshelf <laughs> in your living room. But so so that was part of the formulation. So uh, Arius simply took the idea of the father and the son, and he said, well, if the father has to precede the son, because without a father, there is no son, right? So there must be a time when the son was not. If there were ever a time, now that sounds logical, right? Yeah, it sounds logical. It's like because chicken and egg. I think a chicken came first. <laughs> I don't know. But because we're basing it on our understanding of the relationship between human fathers and human sons. But 
So it makes sense to some extent, except we're talking about God here. And that's different. He's different than any other thing uh, in the universe or outside the universe. So Arius jumped to the conclusion that uh, the sun, there was a time when the sun was not. If there was a time when the sun was not, he's not God because he's not eternal. And if he's not eternal, then he's not God. If he's not God, he's got to be a creature. But so does that Jesus, make sense? Does, does they have to be eternal? Does any rule they have to be eternal? You can't be God unless you're eternal. Oh, that's okay. You can't come. If you come into existence, you are not God. You are by definition not God. And the, the fact of the matter is that anything that comes into existence is contingent. And the, anything that is contingent has to be ultimately dependent on something that is not contingent. And that has to be God. That's the proof for the existence of God. So it's like, uh, you know, you can have a, 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 tr a train, okay? And you can have boxcars. And you can have a lot of boxcars. Let's put it this way. You can have an infinite number of boxcars but that train's not going to move because they are all contingent on the engine, which is the source of motion. Okay. So it's the same thing with the universe or a bridge. You know, you can, to build a bridge, you have to, you know, blow, get the water out there. You have to dig down till you find bedrock and bedrock is something that will not move. So you can have an infinite number of bricks and cement, but if you have nothing, if, if, if you have no foundation that's not going to move, you can't build a bridge. So I just, that's argument from motion, two different kinds, either motion or the absence of motion. It proves that there has to be something that is not contingent. That has to be God. That's what every, every man calls God. Okay. And that means that uh, if, if Jesus Christ, uh, there was a time when he did not exist as God, the son, then he could not be God. Arius was saying, well, it's obvious if he's the son, he has their son, there's a time when the son does not exist and the father precedes him. Well, he got that wrong. And that led to a huge crisis. And the Jews backed the Arian heretics because they always back heretics against the church. Seems that like a the, lot of fighting over this harassing doctrine theology, don't, don't you think? Is that, is that it's, it's, it's much worse than what I just said because uh, it, came, it came down to uh, a uh, a, uh, a choice of two words in Greek, homoousion and homoousion. One letter difference between these two. Homoousion means one in being. Homoousion, homoousion means like in being. So God, Jesus is like God. That's what the Harry and heretics said, and it was defeated ultimately. Why it's a sign of the supernatural nature of the church that that was defeated because most people uh, were Arians. The world grown, awoke and grown to find itself Arian. Uh, yeah, who said that? Was it uh, someone said that? One of the church fathers said that. Uh, that was the situation back then. But it was saved because it simply didn't work. And if you didn't get that straight, the train of logos in human history left the station without you and the main group that got oh. left the main group that got left behind in the station were the muslims because they got their idea of christ from the nestorians who were also heretics of this time all of the heresies at this time were christological heresies where one would say jesus christ is god but not man jesus christ is man but not god and and variations on this theme so because of that, they, they, tended, they, they, were, they had to come up with a religion that had a, an incomplete understanding of what God was, even though that understanding had to come from revelation. So you say the Muslims got an old version. <laughs> well, they got the, the, from the, the story in heritage. Yeah. So the Muslim uh, scriptures are based on that, you're saying? Well, I mean, it's a long, complicated story. I go into this in my book, Logos Rising, which is also for sale at the same website. Uh, but I'm saying these are all interrelated ideas. If, if there's one, uh, uh, the chapter on the Aryan heresy uh, is also the link between Logos Rising and the Jewish revolutionary spirit, if you're interested in tracking the history of ideas, uh, in my mind, at least. So that's one oh, chapter. Yeah. The, the yeah. other chapter is the chapter on the Armenian genocide. 
which is completely a completely different type of thing. But basically, yeah, that that's is really interesting. That's really important to me. That's that a million. The, the 1.5 million. This is yeah. in the news because the Biden administration has called it a genocide. Uh, uh, there, there is no doubt that 1.5 million Armenians died at that particular moment, 1915. Yeah, I remember back in the 1980s, there was still a question like, did this happen? Did this not happen? And I remember reading. I, no, no one is disputing that those people died. The, yeah. the only question here is, was it, was it, were they intentionally uh, targeted for destruction? And this has been the bone of contention basically between the Armenians and the Turks since that time so it to just give you the status of the debate the the uh, yes, yes. The, the armenians would say yes they were we were targeted 1.5 million armenians died and the turks would say yes they they died but they it was not an intentional genocide it was basically the situation was where uh, the turkey is in the middle of world war one uh they are in the middle of a crucial battle for their existence because at this moment during that war, the British Navy is trying to break through the blockade of the Dardanelles. Uh, if they, if the British Navy gets into the Black Sea, they capture Constantinople. If they capture Constantinople or Istanbul, the war is over and they lost. Okay, so it's a crucial battle and the Turks are allied with the Germans. The Germans basically create this impregnable fortress based of artillery. They take, took it off their gunships artillery on both sides of the Dardanelles, chains and nets and barriers drawn across it. And it's a narrow channel that these ships have to go through. Now, the British Navy is the most powerful Navy in the world. And powerful Navy at this point means big ships because you need a big ship for a big gun. And you need a big gun because if your gun fires 26 miles, a shell 26 miles, and the other ship can fire only 13 miles, you can destroy that ship before it can even get near you. Yeah, that's the principle. Did that, that actually happen? Wow. No, well, the, the that's uh, true for the open seas, but it's not true for the Dardanelles because this is very narrow uh, channel that these ships have to go through. And both sides are basically uh, armed with uh, artillery and the Germans are teaching how the Turks how to use artillery in a very effective manner. And so they sink every single ship. They sink the biggest ships in the British and French Navy. Yay, I'm on the German side. Okay. <laughs> so at this, at this point, at the very moment when this battle hangs in the balance, the Russians invade from the east. Uh, and to invade from the east, they have to go through Armenia. And the Armenians side with the Russians. Now, the Turks consider this treason because you're siding with the enemy when he's invading. And so the, the, the invasion is blunted. And at this point, the Turks take their revenge. And they say, we are going to move all of these Armenians out of the Eastern frontier because they can't be trusted. They're traitors and they will let the Russians in and we're at war with Russia. And so they just say, okay, we're gonna move you to the desert in Syria. Well, that's a long walk. And there are no McDonald's along that way. As a matter of fact, there's nothing on that road. There's no place to get water and there's no place to get food. And so you got women and children and old people walking along that road and dropping like flies. And then you add to that, there are tribes there who are natural, the natural enemies of the Armenian people and they start attacking them as well. And the Turks do nothing to defend these people. And there is, as a result, 15 1.5 million uh, people die. I always thought this was the Jews that killed the Armenians. Well, okay. No, it was the Turks. But at this but I point... I thought the Jews controlled the Turks. Well, at this point, this is the contribution this, this paradigm makes to this discussion. Because the point of what, I'm, what I saw when I did research into this is both the young Turks... Who were the young Turks? Well, they were, they were conversos. The word for converso in Turkish is donme, which means to turn. And these are the followers of Shabbatai Zevi. There's a whole chapter on Shabbatai Zevi in the Jewish Revolution. So Jews spirit. in disguise, there's Jewish control. That's what I would say. That's, so these were the people who basically 
where the young Turks, they were the revolutionaries on the Turkish side. So now we look at the, uh, the Armenian side. What well, turns out you've got revolutionaries there too. They're called uh, Hunchaks and later they're called Dashnaks. And it turns out, well, where did they get these ideas? Well, they went to Russian universities and guess what they learned? They, they, they made contact with the Jewish revolutionary groups at Russian universities, in particularly not at Nyavolia, the national path. These are Jewish terrorists. This is, uh, Richard Pipes calls it uh, not at Nyavolia, the first Jewish terrorist organization. They were terrorists. They had not succeeded in convincing the Jewish, uh, the Russian peasants to uh, basically rise up in revolution. And so they turned to terrorism. And that's what happened. And so what happened here is you've got Jewish influence on both sides, turning both sides into revolutionaries, which means there's never going to be a peaceful solution here. They they're are working both together, right? Well, the, no, they're working across purposes, but they're operating according to the same playbook. And the playbook is the Jewish revolutionary spirit. They both got it when they went to Russian universities. This, yeah. this is not a Nyavolia is the organization that uh, had Lenin's older brother as one of its members. And Lenin's older brother wow. was executed because he murdered, he was uh, uh, part of the conspiracy that killed the czar, assassinated the czar. Lenin, be, that's where, before Lenin knew what Marxism wait, 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 was. Which czar? Which czar do you mean? Alexander the first. The way eight, 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 1881, uh, the czar was murdered in St. Petersburg. And Lenin's older brother was executed for that. And Lenin's part was part of that conspiracy. He was executed. And then Lenin shows up. Serves at the, him right. Serves him right. <laughs> Lenin shows up at the, uh, at the same university and they recruit him immediately. So be, I, I'm saying before Lenin knew anything about, uh, before Bolshevism was a concept in anyone's mind, I'm talking about the 1880s now, long before 1917, he learned, got the Jewish revolutionary spirit, not from Karl Marx, from Bernardo Nyavolia, a homegrown yeah. Jewish terrorist organization. There you go. Wow. And that's, that's, that's exactly where the Hunchaks and the Dashnaks got it. So if you put two different factions of Jewish revolutionaries together, even if they call one group calls itself Armenians and the other group calls itself Turks, you're going to have trouble. And that's precisely what happened. That's, that's I think, the real hidden grammar of the Armenian genocide. And it's still not being discussed. Still not wow. being discussed. I'm glad we're discussing it. But weren't the Armenians like the very best Christians in Europe? And that's why the Jews would want to kill them because they hated the Christians. Well, they, they, they are the oldest Christian group in the world. The Armenians. The Armenians. The there Armenian church is, is uh, an ancient, ancient church. Uh, much, much older than uh, either church in the East or the West. So, and they preserved that Christian identity for, for uh, two millennia. Uh, uh, so they had this, and, and the, you know, they're surrounded in a sea of uh, Islam. Uh, is, is, the Islamic conquest did not destroy their uh, commitment to the, to the uh, Christian faith. So that was the reputation they had. There were certain tri uh, tribes there, ethnic groups that hated them and would attack them whenever they were given the chance. And that's, they were given the chance during this death march that the Armenian people were forced to take after, uh, in 1915. So I guess it's a whodunit. So do you conclude whodunit? Did the Jews kill the Armenians? No. Yes. So and no. What do you mean? Yeah, what am I saying? Well, who's responsible? The, the, Who, who's the establishment that planned this? The Turks. The Turks. The Turks planned it. Okay, the Turks were reacting to an invasion from the east, a Russian invasion, but there was Jewish involvement early on. There's a man by the name of Parvus. Uh, his, his name was Alexander Helpant, uh, a Jew, a communist, the money man, one of the serious money men uh, that were funding the Bolshevik revolution. The revolution, he was uh, particularly active in the revolution of 1905, which failed. And at that point, he was demoralized because he thought uh, Germany should be the next country. Germany, instead of going for revolution, the Social Democrats came to power in Germany. And they, they basically bled away the uh, membership of the revolutionary groups. Social democracy was not 
revolutionary. Okay, it was Jewish, but it was not revolutionary in the way that the like the Bolsheviks would be. So he gave up on Germany. So what's he going to do? Where did he go? He went to Istanbul, and he thought if there's any there ever a candidate for revolution, it's the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire was the sick man of Europe. Everybody thought it was going to fall, collapse of its own weight yeah, yeah. year after year. And it's still, it hung on, hung on. And now we have this great moment of opportunity known as World War I. Because war is what leads to the toppling of, of empires. And that's precisely what happened with Parvis's help. So he was there involved, intimately involved in one side or the other of, the, of this, of what became this dispute. So it's it, the fingerprints are all over. You cannot understand the Armenian genocide unless you understand the Jewish participation in revolutionary movements at that time that radicalized yeah. both sides and led to an unhappy outcome. If it weren't for the Jewish revolutionary spirit, the Armenians would not have risen up in rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, if they hadn't risen up in rebellion, there would have been no reason for the Turks to... Uh, either exterminate them, if you want to use that word, or put them on the death march where they all died. It wouldn't have happened. Just wonder if you could relate this to um, World War I, the, the Russians were in uh, Iran, and then the British pushed them out, the British had control of Iran, and they cut out the food supplies of the ports, so the British starved to death eight to 10 million Iranians, and hardly anyone knows about it. And I would say the British are under Jewish control, so I would say international Jews starved to death. It's perhaps one of the greatest genocides of the 20th century around the same time. Can you comment on that or link the two together? Well, that was, that was the purpose of the British Navy. That was the purpose of the British Navy. And there, so you had this conflict uh, between the island nations like England and the United States and the land nations, which is the Eurasian landmass. This is the Mackinder thesis that was written about uh, 10, 15 years before the outbreak of World War, World War I. This was the plan. The English Navy is Leviathan. It's a sea monster. And the sea monster can come uh, and uh, rise up out of the ocean and destroy you. The Japanese have uh, did Godzilla. The movie Godzilla is based on that idea. Ah. That, that's what happened to Japan. The sea monster came up. Godzilla came up out of the ocean and destroyed Tokyo. That was the, uh, the uh, island nations, England ah. and the American Navy. So they did the same thing with Germany after the war. Winston Churchill was uh, head of the admiralty at that point. And he declared a, uh, a blockade uh, against Ger Hamburg, all the German ports in the north, and 100,000, at least 100,000 Germans starved to death. I think it might have been 800,000, a lot of them, yeah. Yeah, I think 100,000 is probably low, but I, I don't have okay. an exact figure. But I know a lot of Germans starved to death because of that blockade. Yeah. After, after they had signed an armistice. Yeah, totally unfair. But what's the motive to starve to death 8 to 10 million Iranians? Well, the motive is to win the war, uh, and the me the method is uh, blockading your ports. So, oh, I, I thought they had conquered Iran. Like, if the British took control of Iran, why would they need to starve the people if they already had control? So, well, I, I I don't I don't know that story completely. I don't know that story. I know that the the uh, I, I just don't know. Sometimes, if you're simply diverting material uh, away from a population, you, they can starve to death. Oh, I see. Oh, could happen yeah. happened happened in India when the British were in charge of India. It happened in Ireland. The, yeah. the Irish potato famine was uh, Ireland was exporting food during the Irish potato famine. Yeah, the British uh, controlled the food because the British landlords controlled the country and they they were growing food and uh, they were exporting it. They're exporting grain because grain was not affected by the uh, bacillus, the bacteria that created the, the potato famine. So they, the last six million Irishmen starved to death deliberately then? Because, uh, yeah, they, they, they allowed it to happen. It was also a function of capitalism. It was also a function of this reliance on markets. Uh, Nassau Sr. Uh, was the economist who justified, uh, basically, just let, let the market take care of it. 
Well, that it may work over the long haul, but it's not going to work over the short haul. And you have to intervene and provide food in an emergency situation. And they didn't do it. They didn't I guess I, I always thought, like, I'm not a scholar at all like you, but I just thought maybe the, the British, the English were jealous of the Irish and wanted to put them down and control them and uh, subjugate them and wanted them six million to die. So they would be a weaker power than the British. Just like Israel wants to destroy its neighbors. That's what I, that was my impression. Uh, you could you could make this case more, let's say, the time of the First World War when the Irish did rise up against the British. But this was on. No, there was no threat of insurrection in 1847. It was purely some people speculate that, that they were importing potatoes from America. And usually the, the, the potato would sit in the hold of the ship long enough. It was hot and it was in the hold of the ship and it killed all the bacteria so that the potato would arrive sound, and then you could eat it. Well, the ships got faster, and because they were faster, the, the, the heat didn't kill all the bacteria. And so when the potatoes arrived, it spread throughout the, the crop, the native crop in Ireland. Also spread to Germany, but places like on the continent, they had other sources of uh, food. So the revel I, I think, uh, this is in my book, Barren Metal, which is about economics. And I think that the uh, potato famine was one of the contributing factors to the revolution of 1848, because it took place one year after the spread of the potato famine. Oh, yeah. But the fact of the matter is that the Irish had no other sources of food. They, they basically were a monoculture, and the potato was the only thing they ate. Isn't that strange? Like it came from the 1600s in uh, South America. That's where right. it comes from, right? Right. So how, how did this happen? How did they get so dependent on potatoes? Uh, because first of all, uh, you could grow a lot more of them. Uh, it, it was nutritious. And so it led to a population increase. This is when Malthus wrote his book on population, he was thinking of Ireland. He was thinking of an island nation. So the potato is... Uh, you can grow a lot of them on a very small plot of ground, which is all that the Irish had, uh, like the Shamba in Kenya, in East Africa. Uh, and you could feed a family and it caused a population increase. But over this period of time, let's say from the middle of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century, it became the only thing that women cooked. And so they wow. were saying, if, if you, if you gave, uh, uh, an Irish woman at this time, uh, a bag of flour she didn't know what to do with it they didn't know how to bake bread they didn't know That's how to so do strange. anything so but strange. cook but cook potatoes they were they were coastal areas where the you could look down at the ocean you could see fish and the irish simply couldn't didn't know how to catch the fish that is they, so they strange had, they were they have been so conquered and so habituated to simply this monoculture of potatoes that they didn't know how to do anything else well what did they eat before the potato grain so the Scots, the Scotch, uh, the Scottish people ate uh, oats, and the English people ate wheat. And Adam Smith, who was a Scotsman, said he could tell the difference when he crossed the border, because the English were bigger than the Scotsmen, because the Scotsmen just ate oats. So you ate some type of grain. Uh, that's what I, that's what Ireland was. But the potato was much more effective. You could grow a lot more potatoes in the same plot of ground than you could grain but isn't that boring <laughs> potatoes all the time can you imagine us eating potatoes all the time listen i grew up in a family where every meal had to have a potato in it I, <laughs> me too i'm we, a we, dutch catholic family we ate potatoes every meal every, we ate potatoes at every meal i'm 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 biracial i'm half irish and half uh german and uh good my father who was Irish demanded to have potatoes at every meal. It wasn't a meal without potatoes. Now we could add meat to it, but that's the way he grew up. I remember just thinking how strange spaghetti was. Like where, where's the potato? Yeah, we would have meat, potatoes and vegetables. Meat, potatoes and vegetables. That's right, that was, that's what we ate. That that's Dutch. what we ate. Yeah, that's what we that's ate. That's what yeah. we ate. So, so that's, that's basically what you-, it, but you didn't still, the Irish have meat? Didn't they have cows? Didn't they no, eat meat? No, 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 they didn't. Wow. They didn't. First of all, most people did not have meat during in Europe. Uh, well, certainly during the Middle Ages, uh, you, uh, grain was the staple of diet. That was pretty much it. And uh, so most people didn't have meat. If you were a king, Philip II 
ate nothing but meat. That's all he ate. Oh, because he was so he was the king. Because he was the king, and he also <laughs> got he also got a dispensation from the Pope that he didn't have to fast during Lent because he that's all. So he ate meat and he drank wine, and that was wow. it. That was it. And the prob problem was he got a horrible case of gout as as a result of that. <laughs> wow, that's what happens. Anyway, it's been it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, I really like your knowledge of history. Is there anything else you want to add about your book and certainly the, where they can get it? With culture yes, Wars? just go to culturewars.com. The the uh, where the the warehouse has shipped copies of the book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Uh, it arrives at our warehouse tomorrow, so we can start taking orders. We can fulfill the orders right now. So it's been a long wait, but it's finally over. So thanks, thanks for letting me uh, talk about it. Go to culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org and you can place your order now. Thank you kindly, Dr. E. Michael Jones. This has been on several times since 2015. I want you back and please live a long life and keep at it. You're, you're like the unique scholar in the world. You're like first class, world class scholar in this. I really appreciate you. So Thank you. Have you on my show. Thank you. Thank you for having me.